So when I came here to the U.S., I didn't cross the border illegally. I came here with a visa and a passport, and then we didn't return back after it expired. This is Lily Castro. She lives in San Diego, and she is a dreamer, a recipient of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. When you got DACA at 19, what did you expect it to do, you know, for the rest of your life? Did it seem like, okay, I, I got it. It's, I'm good now or what? It was a bit of a relief because right before I got DACA, I had just graduated high school and I felt like there wasn't anything that I could achieve here in the U.S. But mm. once I got DACA, then it was like, okay, I can work and I can do all of these things, especially living in California. It was more open to DACA recipient, like you're able to get a license and you can get a work permit and all of that. Lily has a life here in the U.S. A job, friends, family. I'm working for a company that uh, does distribution for grocery items. Gotcha, gotcha. And I also help run a local Harry Potter group and meetups. Wait, what? Yeah. Harry so, Potter meetups? Yeah. Oh my goodness. But like every other DACA recipient in this country, since DACA began, Lily has been in limbo. The program was meant to be a temporary fix. And for years, DACA has been challenged in court. And Donald Trump, as president, he tried to end DACA a few times. But Joe Biden is president now, and he has already proposed a very progressive agenda on immigration, including a fast-tracked pathway to citizenship for people like Lily. So I'm guessing you've been following... Joe Biden and all of these executive orders and policy recommendations around immigration over the last two weeks or so, have you? Yes, yes, I, I have. We've been so happy. My roommate and I are just like, we've been watching the news constantly since before the election results happened. Really? Yeah, and it's just been such a relief to have something finally happen because right now it just feels like I'm stuck in between anyways. Like, I can't really leave the country I can't really plan for the future, but I can't really leave because I don't know anything about Mexico. Everything I know is about the U.S. Joe Biden has proposed a lot on immigration in just two weeks. He ended Trump's so-called Muslim travel ban. He signed an executive order that would allow undocumented immigrants to be counted in the census. He stopped construction of the border wall with Mexico. He ended a policy that would let the federal government crack down on sanctuary cities. But the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like, look like you, or worship the way you do, or don't get their news from the same sources you do. So Lily is hopeful, but still unsure. If I were in your shoes, I would be so angry and so anxious, just not knowing for years. Are you angry? Are you anxious? Like, I want to give you the space to let it all out. <laughs> No, it's definitely, I'm very anxious about the whole thing. I mean, it, it took me a year to even try and apply for DACA because at, at the beginning, it was like, if you fill it out wrong, then you're not going to be able to do it again. Or mm. if you miss the document, you're not going to be able to resubmit it. And like, they'll have your information. and They're going to go pick you up because, you know, they know where your relatives Goodness. live. They know where you live and you're all undocumented. So it's just a ploy to get your information and get you. What do you want people hearing this conversation to know about your life or your experience, you know, that might just inform the way that we all think about immigration? It's not as easy and cut and dry as everyone thinks. 
half of the time when I tell somebody I'm undocumented, they're like, well, why don't you just get a green card? They don't understand the processes and how hard it is to just become a citizen. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And this episode, we're going to talk immigration and immigration reform. The difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump on immigration, it's massive. And it may come to be the top issue for Team Biden during these first months of his term. To unpack what could change and what it all might mean, I called up Caitlin Dickerson over at The Atlantic. She has been covering immigration for years. We talked about how even though what Biden is doing is such a big departure from Donald Trump, in the big picture, immigration has been something that neither party seems to ever really fix. I think if you want to talk about the biggest departure, you probably have to focus on the headline of Biden's legislative proposal, which is this pathway to citizenship for 11 million, roughly, people who are living in the United States without legal status. I mean, it's an eight-year pathway to citizenship and even a fast-tracked opportunity to get to citizenship for DACA recipients, which may not be terribly surprising. You know, dreamers are, have incredible support among the American electorate, but also farm workers. You know, that too, I think, stands out as something unique, um, especially following a pandemic when farm workers continued working. Many of them got sick, but, yes. you know, kept the shelves and grocery stores. They're essential workers. Exactly. Yeah. Full of food and kept us fed as a country. So it's a, it's a really bold plan. I think that's probably the biggest departure. Yeah. So... When I heard that Joe Biden was outlining a path to citizenship, it took me back to what George W. Bush tried to do. People who meet a reasonable number of conditions and pay a penalty of time and money should be able to apply for citizenship. And what Barack Obama tried to do with immigration. Yesterday, a bipartisan group of senators announced their principles for comprehensive immigration reform, which are very much in line with the principles I've proposed and campaigned on for the last few years. And they both failed. Mm-hmm. What about this, this time, is going to make it succeed? Or is this also doomed to fail? Because Congress usually never actually does the heavy lift <laughs> that Biden's asking for. Right. So I'm going to proceed with a little bit of caution here, because as somebody who's been covering immigration for many years, I've been left at the altar with a comprehensive immigration reform many times. And so I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> Always the bridesmaid or something. I don't know. <laughs> Never the bride. But Biden's going to give it his best shot. And I think what's different here than um, what President Obama was working with is that Biden has made the choice to introduce legislation at a time when the Democrats control both houses of Congress. That's not to say that he's necessarily going to get all the votes that he needs, but he's in a much better position to lead rather than one that President Obama was in, you know, for the majority of his tenure, which really required him to have to lead with by compromising. Yeah. It seems as if uh, he is not putting forth a bill that would even open itself up to prolonged negotiation with the other side. Uh, and there's been some messaging from Democrats that they're not going to wait for Republicans to get on board. What's the shakeout with that and like how this will be received by Republicans who might be moderate or not? You're right, Sam, that this proposed legislation doesn't offer a whole lot of immediate concessions to Republicans. And I think what stuck out most for me was the complete absence of any discussion about street arrests, right, which is a real departure Hmm. from the past. I think 
across the political spectrum, but particularly Republicans, when they talk about immigration reform legislation, there tends to be a real focus on law enforcement, on criminality, on making sure that you can get access to anyone who doesn't have legal status, who's come into contact with police for any reason, you know, whether it be that they're driving without a license or whether they've gotten a DUI, try to deport that person as soon as possible. And and it's a narrative that persists despite the fact that there's a large body of research that really points out that immigrants have been shown time and time again, even undocumented immigrants, to commit crimes at lower rates than the American public. But there historically Mm. has been this real focus on really connecting the two as if they're like inextricably linked. And I think this Biden Mm. plan really kind of dispenses with that narrative. And I, I do think that's the influence of progressive activists on the left that his team must be listening to. And it is an open question, though, whether that's going to make this proposal a complete deal breaker for Republicans or whether you know they're ready to move forward and change the narrative a little bit, too. I do think that another element of timing that's really important here is that, you know, President Biden is taking over right after President Trump. And I think that an adverse perhaps effect of some of President Trump's harshest policies is that he really pushed a lot of people to the left. Americans were up in arms about immigration proposals and immigration policies that President Trump instituted that had never been seen before. But they also really got upset about longstanding issues, problems about overcrowding in detention centers, about the treatment of kids who are in federal custody. None of these things were new under President Trump, but people sort of got hip to them and realized that they didn't feel good about them. And so I think that too has influenced Biden's proposal. And that too is a part of why it's so much further to the left than what we heard when he was in the White House as vice president. Well, and this really gets to my next question. Like, it seems as if both parties have been pushed further away from the center over the last several years. Uh, You know, Democrats are really, really progressive on immigration now. And the GOP is really, really conservative on it. You know, if some of what we're seeing from Biden echoes some parts of a Bush plan for immigration or an Obama plan for immigration, we have to note that both parties are in a very different place now than they were under those presidents. Um, How does that affect the calculus, the fact that just America is so polarized on this issue? That's right. And, you know, I always like to remind myself because it it really matters that when you look at polling, the voters who are most likely to actually act, to actually cast their vote based on their views on immigration are not progressives. It's it's the most conservative Republicans who are most often thinking about immigration as their issue that they they might be voting on um, more than any other group. And so that's something that, you know, both parties have in mind right now. The way that the Republican Party reacts to this Biden plan is going to tell us a lot about not just how they feel about immigration, but but why. You know, is it about economics or is it about something else? Hmm. Yeah. You know, when I think of immigration as an issue in American politics, I just remember every president for as long as I can remember saying our immigration system is totally broken and then saying that we should fix it. And then it never gets fixed. And this is both parties. And I think Mm -hmm. most Americans would agree our immigration system is broken. Mm -hmm. What is it about this issue that the country keeps agreeing it needs to be fixed, but we never fix it? What does it say about America capital A? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. what's up with that? 
what's the big moral of the story for who we are as a nation? Okay. That we can't fix this. Here are my thoughts, Sam. I think this is a really important question. This is actually something that I'm planning to spend a lot of time on, um, you know, in the next couple of years because yeah. I think that immigration law is always a number of things. It's economic policy, but it's it's mm-hmm. so much more than that. It's about race. It's about culture. It's about language. It's about values. What are the values that the government wants to, you know, communicate to the American public? But what are the values also that the government wants to communicate internationally? And when you look back throughout history, all of those factors have been taken into consideration every single time that a new immigration law has been passed. And that, I think, is actually part of the problem. I really started noticing this in the last few years. You know, I'd be traveling across the Mm. country writing about President Trump's policies and people, you know, Democrat and Republican, I feel like they would pull me aside and they say like, okay, Caitlin, like, but what do you really think? What do you, how can we fix this? But what I realized was that what they were talking about, the this that they wanted to fix was two very different things. You know, there was one group of people, most often Republicans who would say, you know, how do we fix this? And they were talking about, for them, the problem was that there were so many people coming to the United States. They felt like the numbers were too high. And then I would talk to, you know, a far left Democrat who would say, you know, Caitlin, how do we fix this? But they were talking about the fact that it was actually hard for people who wanted to come to the United States to get in. Or they were talking about, you know, the conditions and the detention centers or the separations of families, you know, the ways that people who were attempting to migrate to the United United States were being treated by the American government. And I do think that this disconnect and this really at the end of the day talking past each other that we sometimes do as mm. a country is at the heart of the intractability mm. of this debate. I think if we can't get on the same page and actually start talking about the same problems, you can see how it becomes, you know, seemingly impossible to work toward a solution. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading your work over the next few years and uh, have this stuff explained to me because it's really complex and it's for sure not over yet. (laughs) Not at all. Yeah, thanks so much, Sam. Thanks again to friend of the show, Caitlin Dickerson. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic covering immigration. Coming up, I talk with Preet Bharara. He was a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York until Donald Trump fired him. We talk about Donald Trump's legacy and Preet's new podcast, Doing Justice. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. If you find yourself choosing the longest checkout line, that can only mean one thing. You've downloaded Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game, which means where others see a hassle, all you see is a chance to play one more level a few more times. Turn dull moments into pockets of fun. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe explains the importance of creating a safe space for therapy. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that say that expression, like, I've never told that to anybody. That's when I know I've made some kind of momentous move with this person. They feel safe enough to expose that part of themselves, and doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com minute. 
If you're never quite sure how to answer the question, Where are you from? NPR's Rough Translation might be the podcast for you. Yes, finally, someone else. Give us your accents and your origin stories, your cross-cultural misfits yearning to just be, and listen to Rough Translation on NPR. The first time you let it go to voicemail, you let Trump all three, go to voicemail. So he called me three times. All three times it went to voicemail because I wasn't in my office, or the, or my or my assistant got the call. Or you saw the words Donald Trump on your phone. I and did. Said, <laughs> I, didn't. I didn't. I just happened. That is Preet Bharara. He is a lawyer and former federal prosecutor, and Preet got those phone calls just after Trump got elected, when Preet was still U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Barack Obama appointed Preet Bharara. And he expected to resign from his post when Trump took office, because that's how it usually works. But Preet stayed at Trump's request. And then the phone calls began, which was weird. So Preet told the White House that he wanted to loop in the Department of Justice with these calls. 20 hours later, he fired you. He did. He did. I, you know, every time someone famous got fired, my mom you know, grew happier. It's like, oh, Jim Comey, oh, it's a pretty good club to be in. <laughs> Preet says he is still not entirely sure why he got fired. But the firing did come right around the same time folks were saying that officials like Preet should investigate Donald Trump's businesses. Since that firing, Preet has become a very vocal critic of Donald Trump. And he's talked a lot about what Trump has meant for our legal norms and the rule of law. And that gets to the heart of why I wanted to talk to Preet this week. Preet says the rules that we choose to follow as a nation, it's all really precarious. Justice doesn't just happen. It's the product of people being fair-minded and a process being fair. Preet Bharara explored these themes in his book called Doing Justice. And now he has a podcast also called Doing Justice. In the description for the podcast, you know, you, you talk about the justice system being this like machine that we expect to just give us a verdict. You're right and you're wrong. You go to jail, you don't. But it's not that simple. It's all of these personalities that play a part in it. And it's operated by human beings. And human beings and human error can either serve justice or thwart justice because we're all fallible and flawed, etc. Do you think those fallibilities, if that's a word, are they getting worse or getting better? Or are we addressing them in a worse way or a better way right now? So that's a great question. I mean, the premise is a very important one. We say all the time in this country, and particularly over the last four years, something very important, and it's a bedrock principle of our democracy, of our legal system, of what it means to have a rule of law. And that is that we are a nation of laws, not men. And that's completely true. But it is also true that at the end of the day, good laws, good rules, good regulations, even a good constitution doesn't save you from injustice, right? There are ways to pervert the purpose of the rule of law. There are ways to corrupt it. And there are ways to, to, to pull off miscarriages of justice, no matter how good the laws are. So you need both things. Um, so, you know, to, to answer your, your ultimate question, is it getting worse or better? Look, I think in the last four years, it's gotten worse. You know, think about this, right? If you are a person who believes like I do, that we've had an erosion of the rule of law, and we've had an erosion in equality before the law over the last four years under, under the prior president and his Justice Department, consider the following. For the most part, the things that you're annoyed about, the rules haven't changed, the Constitution hasn't changed, statutes haven't changed. What has changed in many, many of those instances that people are concerned about is the identity of the people who are responsible, whether it's Jeff Sessions or Bill Barr hmm. or various judges who have been appointed 
or policymakers in the White House, they have figured out ways to do things to undermine what I think is fair and proper, not by changing the rules, but just by changing personnel. And that's important. Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean to release a podcast about justice in our current moment, where a lot of the norms around justice have just been changed or challenged for the last few years? So I think there's no more important time than now, because now, I, again, this is my view, and people may have a different view, that we can have an opportunity, finally, with a change in administration, to return to some norms. And not just a return to some norms, but a return to first principles. Um, you know, I say in the book, and it's a premise of the podcast, sometimes the best way to address current controversy is to go back to first principles. What does fairness mean? What does an open mind mean? What does getting your day in court mean? And I think for people who are coming back into the government or who are policymakers and thinking about how to make America more just, I think there's no better time than now for people to hear the stories of how deliberations were done and how victims were treated and how courts decided things in a way that then is, you know, stripped of politics and stripped of all the sort of, you know, heated talk about Trump and the people around him. And look, one of the principal premises of, of justice and doing justice is that it's supposed to be apart from politics and separate from politics. And one of the, going back to your earlier question, one of the ways in which I think we're in bad shape is that so much of justice has been politicized by people who have a political agenda. So then, if that's the place that we're in right now, all those things you just said, and also seeing all this data that indicates that Americans in general have just come to trust our big institutions less than we did decades or like a generation ago, are we in a justice crisis right now as a nation? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, look, I don't know that there have been long stretches where, where we haven't been. There's been inequality and injustice in lots of different ways. And in some ways, those things are, are better, but imperfect. But we have examples of things that have happened at the hands of the police, some things that have happened at the hands of higher-ups in government, some things that have happened by the President of the United States. And, you know, perceptions of, of not equal treatment before the law. Look, a, a good beginning is that the incoming attorney general, the nominee, Merrick Garland, made a flat statement that he's not the lawyer for the president, that he's a lawyer for the people. And that's not enough. You have the president himself, and I credit him. Others could be skeptical if they want to be. But you have both the president and the incoming attorney general saying things that Donald Trump and Bill Barr, to my knowledge, did not say. You know, but Joe Biden has also said, I'm not going to direct the department. Now, it is very refreshing, and it's just the start. But sometimes you got to start with the most fundamental things for a president to state on the record and direct his attorney general not to be his attorney, but to be the attorney general for the public and to prosecute cases as he sees fit. Yeah. From your perspective, what do you think, uh, now that it's kind of in the rear view, is the biggest lesson for America in the Trump years from his presidency? Oh, well, there are a lot of lessons. Um, look, I, I guess one is... Uh, and I don't mean to sound trite, but that complacency is our biggest problem. And this view, I think there's been a little bit of a loss of innocence. And you know, early on in the Trump presidency, I, I thought it was interesting to read uh, the writings of thoughtful people who are not American and who had grown up in South America or in Europe 
and, and somebody, I forget mm. who said it, was, it has been a sort of conceit of Americans for a long time now, during the, you know, the entire uh, experiment of American democracy, that certain things can't happen in America. In other words, you know, a demagogue, pure populist, who uh, disregards the truth fundamentally every day, like a person like that can't rise to power in America. And there's nothing in, in, the, in, the, in the world of law, history, or science that made that so. And now I think Americans understand that. I think, you know, related to mm. that is lots and lots of things that the president did. You know, we, people love to talk about what he did to cross the line into criminal activity. Can he be impeached? Can he be charged? You know, that misses the point a little bit. He did a million things that he had the perfect authority to do. You know, whether it was hiring mm. you know, his relatives into office or, uh, you know, sharing intelligence, you know, secret classified information when he shouldn't have. There are a million things that he did because we give the president a lot of power. Mm. I feel like the thing that I learned the most from four years of Trump is that most of the things Americans think are rules about D.C. and how politics works, they're actually just norms. Yeah, that's um, true. And unless you keep an eye on stuff... Who knows what could happen? All right, on that lovely, uplifting <laughs> note, can I ask you to stick around uh, and after a break play a game with me? It'll I'm be very fun, nervous. I but I'm not good at games. I was I was warned that I was going to have to play this game. I will do it. I will do it just because I like you very much. Well, thank you, sir. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. At CarMax, the best way to buy a car is your way. Shop on your schedule and choose from over 50,000 CarMax certified vehicles at CarMax.com. Check out 360-degree views, set up a trade-in appraisal, apply for financing, and buy online or in-store with curbside pickup and home delivery in select markets. Get all the details and start the search for your next car today at CarMax.com. We are still in the middle of this pandemic. And right now, having science news you can trust, from variants to vaccines, is essential. NPR Shortwave has your back. About 10 minutes every weekday, listen and subscribe to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. I want to pivot really hard right now and just play a fun game. It is called Who Said That? The game is quite simple. I share three weird quotes from the week of news, and you got to guess who said it. Uh, some weeks we play this game. Is with... it multiple choice? No, sir. Uh-uh. You're smart. Oh, you could no. do this. You're Honorable J.D. Esquire Preet. <laughs> J.D. Smart. Esquire. <laughs> smart doesn't mean I know stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, for this quote, <clears throat> guess what kind of dessert I'm talking about. All right. Here's the quote. Look, I love everything bagels and everything bagel seasoning, but this is an objectively terrible development. Everything bagel seasoning made it into a dessert this week. What dessert? Yeah, ice cream. Ice cream, yes. Do you know who made the ice cream? Uh, you know, I, I, I saw the stories, and because, you know, the fate of our democracy is at stake <laughs> and COVID is still running wild, I, I didn't have the time to click on the article. So that's going to be my excuse as to why I don't know this. Well, I had the time because I love ice cream. <laughs> this quote comes from Hillary Dixler Canavan. She's the restaurant editor for Eater. 
and she was talking about a new flavor of Jenny's ice cream, everything bagel ice cream. It's it's a cream cheese ice cream with everything bagel streusel inside of it. In her review, Have you tried of, that? I haven't, but I probably will because I actually love Jenny's ice cream. They make this flavor called brown butter almond brittle. That is one of the best things I've ever tasted in my life. Okay. So usually I wouldn't taste an everything bagel ice cream, but if Jenny's made it, I'm gonna try. I would I would eat a I would eat a chicken I would eat a chicken tikka masala ice cream. Maybe. <gasps> Yo, okay, that actually sounds great. That actually sounds great. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna give you that point. You got okay. that point. See, this game is easy. This game Thank is you. easy. Yeah. All right. All right. This next one is actually a fill in the blank. In concert with the new family's arrival at number one observatory circle. On the grounds of the United States Naval Observatory, the term blank has finally met our criteria for dictionary entry. Second gentleman? Yes, sir. Look at you. You're on a roll. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very nervous about this. Oh, man. No I think you nervous. dumbed it down for me. I appreciate that. Hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> So that quote uh, comes from Merriam-Webster, the dictionary. This week they announced a whole bunch of new words that they're adding to their dictionary. And one of them was an entry for the phrase second gentleman. Uh, We know that America has its first ever second gentleman in Doug Imhoff. This is Vice President Kamala Harris's husband. He became the first male spouse of a president or vice president in U.S. history. Cool. Yeah. I mean, the second gentleman implies that there's a first gentleman. This is this is the fallacy in the second gentleman appellation, I think. Are you challenging I'm not trying to start Webster here. on the I'm radio, not sir? I'm trying to start anything. But but I don't know who this is a philosophical puzzle. Who who is the first gentleman? I don't know. <laughs> Merriam Webster, hit us up. We have questions. All right, you uh currently are two for two. This last quote is for all the marbles. You know, this one you might not get. Uh-oh. Unless you watch a lot of ABC network television, do you? Uh, you know, um, not a ton, no. Okay, okay, it's all right. Here's the quote. Listen, isn't that an a-hole move? This was a quote. I, I was supposed to tell you who said that? Yeah, you can't get it. No, I'm, I, I, know, I know you can't. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to give you a hint. Okay. This uh, this quote comes from an actress who used to play a character on one of the longest-running medical dramas in TV history. It's still on the air, actually. What is that medical drama? I don't watch any of these shows anymore. I, I say I'm going to—I'm going to—I think it might be better not to say. Not ER, but— I don't think Grey's Anatomy is still on the air, is it? Yes, sir. That's it. It is? We're going to give you that point. We're going to give you that point. We're just going to give you that point. (laughs) Although I didn't know it was still on the air. It's still on the air. It's in its, I think, 16th season. Kudos to them for that. You know what you're doing, Shonda. Um, (laughs) Right. So, okay, this is going to be so hard to explain to you because you don't know Grey's, but Grey's Hive out there listening, you'll get this. Um, So let me see. How do I explain this to you? I'm so sorry. Uh, Many, many years ago, at the start of Grey's Anatomy, one of the central characters uh, was a doctor named Izzy, played by Katherine Heigl. A few seasons in, Katherine Heigl wanted to leave the show to go do movies, so they killed Izzy off, and she had been gone. And everyone was kind of happy because no one liked the character of Izzy. But flash forward many, many years to now, in the 16th season, another central character, Alex Karev, abruptly leaves the show, and to write him off... 
they bring back Izzy. Oh. So Katherine Heigl, the actress who had first played Izzy, is asked about this. She says, I had no idea. I didn't watch the episode. That's an a-hole move. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, this means nothing to you, sir. This no, it's, it's nothing to you. I feel very moved to have heard this story. I uh, love to talk about Grey's Anatomy. It all comes back to justice. <laughs> It all comes back to justice. <laughs> Kareb deserved better. And the rule of law. Leave Izzy out of this, y'all. Shonda, justice for Kareb. You really are a renaissance man. You can hold court on the justice system and ice cream and good TV. I will say I enjoy watching you on TV, Preet Bharara. Well, thank you. I do a, I do a nice stand-up. <laughs> hey, well, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, playing this thank game you, with me. Listeners, uh, Preet's new podcast is called Doing Justice. You can go hear it wherever you listen to podcasts. Preet, come back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week... Listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey, Sam. My name's Crystal. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. And the best thing that happened to me this week is my husband and I signed a contract to build our first house. Hey, Sam. It's Katie from Bellingham, Washington best thing that happened to me this week is I got to hang out with my little niece Freya. She's only about six weeks old and I just love hanging out with her and feel so grateful that I can be with her in this time. Hey Sam, this is Christine in Seattle, Washington. The best part of my week is I started co-creating dance playlists with my friend Kristen. We dance together in our separate living rooms. She kicks her husband and toddler out of the house for an hour, and I'm in my apartment, and we press play at the same moment. And it just brings me so much joy to know that she's shaking her booty at the same time that I am. Hi, Sam. This is Mindy calling from Dearborn, Michigan. And the best part of my week was after I had a really emotional video call with one of my really good friends from college just about how overwhelming life in the pandemic is um my phone dinged like a minute later and it just said i'm here for what you need i love you friend and sometimes we just need those reminders that we do have people that love us and we are worthy of that love so just remember you are loved and thank you for doing what you do sam thank you so much for the podcast it's my favorite thanks for everything love the podcast I really love that. And thanks to that last listener, uh, you reminded me that a thing that my late Aunt Alta used to say all the time when she'd be ending phone calls with me was, remember, you are loved. It felt really nice to hear that today. Thank you. All right. Thanks to all those listeners, Melinda, Christine, Katie, and Crystal. Listeners, you can send your best thing to us at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to me via email, samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Special thanks to former intern Hafsa Fatima. She helped us book this week's episode. Our current intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, Till next time, 
Stay safe and be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.